Hub, and Spoke. Audio Collective. Welcome to Iconography. I'm Charles Gustine, your host on this tour of icons, which is going on a few stops this episode because it's Iconography's third birthday. We'll visit the home bases of both Iconography seasons so far, London and Boston, this episode. But first, a quick trip to San Francisco. Like, I'm not kidding. I, I just got back from a business trip to San Francisco that was so fast, it was whiplash-inducing. <laughs> a flight in Monday evening, a flight out first thing Wednesday morning. On the way out of town, when I wanted to know if I needed to uh, wear a jacket, I asked Siri what the temperature was in Chicago. I had forgotten what city I was in. But there was this moment on Tuesday morning when I was powerfully aware that I was in San Francisco. I had barely slept. My flight had been delayed. My hotel had become overbooked and moved me across town to Presidio Heights when I tried to check in at 1am. And I was bone tired. But looking at the map, the iconographer in me saw a chance at redemption for this trip. Just around the corner from my temporary hotel was the Presidio, a vast park at the bottom of which was the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't have much time, but if I got up early, I could walk down towards the park and I might be able to catch a glimpse of the iconic bridge. Hold on, let me let me change my emphasis there. The iconic bridge. No luck. Turned out because of trees, lots and lots of trees, the bridge wouldn't end up being in my view shed on my morning walk. More on that term later in the episode. It's silly. I, I, I know what the bridge looks like. And it would have just been a distant glimpse, but it still feels like even that distant glimpse would have actually made it feel like I'd visited San Francisco, like the trip had been worth it. That's what icons can do. And that's what this episode is about. Why bridges are so iconic. Iconography started with a bridge, London Bridge, and we're going to pay it a quick visit first. I should note that my visit took place before the latest attacks at London Bridge, a bridge which has been the target of entirely too many attacks in the three years since I first profiled it. The heart of this episode is a story about two of Boston's most iconic bridges from Wade Rausch, the host of Soonish. At the end, Wade and I sit down to compare notes, London bridges and Boston bridges, and what draws us to bridges. So without further ado, let's go visit one now. Hey there. Oh. Okay. Three years ago, I was standing here on London Bridge looking across at the grandeur of Tower Bridge when I came up with an idea for a podcast. I brought my fiancé Carolyn along from our new flat in London to this spot and asked her what she thought of London Bridge. It's just a normal bridge. It's got much wider pedestrian pathways than other ones that I've been on. There's no suspension or anything. It's just a bridge. It makes me feel plain. Three years later, a lot has changed. Carolyn and I are married now, and we have a house in Massachusetts, and we're expecting our first child. Uh, but one thing that hasn't changed that's been a constant across those three years is this podcast, Iconography. Well, some things have changed. I've learned not to record cold open narration outside on location, for one. Or at least, uh, I thought I had. But what the heck, it's, uh, <laughs> it's iconography's birthday, it can cry if it wants to, and it can be uh, narrated outside if it wants to. <laughs> I just wanted to come out here since I'm in town for work and remember what it is that inspired iconography in the first place. And standing out here on London Bridge, the week of Guy Fawkes Day slash Bonfire Night, surrounded by people bustling by, wearing remembrance poppies on their lapels, I'm reminded really powerfully of where iconography came from. It's like living back at the beginning of season one all over again. I miss this place. But other places have similar stories. In this episode, as a birthday present, you're going to hear one about the subject of our current season, New England. This is an episode from Hub and Spoke's sister show, Soonish, about a small old bridge that couldn't stay the way it was, and a newer, larger bridge downriver that quickly became the defining symbol of its city. Now that city happens to be Boston, where host Wade Rausch lives, and where he and I met long after we did our twin episodes about twin bridges, without knowing each other or each other's work. 
Now, as soon as I heard this episode, A Tale of Two Bridges, though, I knew there was another soul out there that was in tune with mine. Here is episode nine of Soonish, A Tale of Two Bridges, followed by a chat that Wade and I had about the remarkable similarities and the big difference between the stories of the Longfellow Bridge in Boston and London Bridge in, well, right here, under my feet. All right, until next time, old friend. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Soonish. It's a show about the future, how we think about it, what we can do to shape it, and why our best forecasts and our worst fears are usually wrong. A couple of weeks ago, my old college friend Sarah Barken and her husband, Mark Drayson, came over to my apartment for dinner. They were a little late because right before they were going to drive over, the sliding door on their minivan fell off. They had to go buy a big blue plastic tarp and some duct tape to cover up the hole. Which was funny because, well, I'll get to that in a minute. After dinner, I made coffee and turned on my recorder. Because we podcasters are weird that way. So you're a multi-generational Bostonian? Yes. Uh, My grandparents uh, on both sides moved here from the old country, yes. Okay. And I've, I've lived in the city my whole life. I'm going to go grab your coffee. Talk amongst yourselves. Do you take milk, Mark? I take milk and one sugar, please. Okay. A generous sugar. (laughs) Some people Um, would define it as two, but he calls it one. (laughs) These days, Sarah works for an affordable housing agency called the Community Economic Development Assistance Corporation, or CDEC. And Mark is the executive director of a regional land use planning agency in Boston called the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, or MAPC. So they're kind of a power couple in the city planning and community development scene around Boston. Now, I live in Cambridge in a 10th floor apartment that overlooks the Charles River. And from the couch where we were having coffee, we could look out the window and see a Boston landmark called the Longfellow Bridge. It's also known as the Salt and Pepper Bridge because of the distinctive towers on the midspan that look like giant salt and pepper shakers. I asked Sarah and Mark to come over partly because I wanted to talk about that bridge. I've been kind of obsessed with it ever since I did a radio story about it last year for one of Boston's NPR stations, WBUR. It opened in 1907, but then it was allowed to rust for decades, to the point where it was in danger of collapsing. And ever since 2013, it's been partially closed for a restoration project that's now years behind schedule and could end up costing close to half a billion dollars. Sarah and Mark think about city planning and infrastructure for a living, so I wanted to ask whether they thought it was worth all the trouble. Well, I'm, I'm a big supporter of saving the bridge. Uh, when, when I was a little boy and I drove over that bridge, my father told me there's a salt and pepper shaker, and I did that with my kids, and I expect them to do it with theirs. And, you know, it's a little hard for me to... <laughs> it's a little hard for me to explain, Wade, why that's important. But... Uh, A lot of what's important in Boston is about being able to talk about and feel and respect the history. And in order to appreciate that and feel it, you have to be able to see different things from those different parts of your history. But the Salt and Pepper Bridge was a particular architectural statement, an important one and a beautiful one, and I feel we, we should have saved it. Now, the expense of that project came from some particular regulations and processes, which maybe were extreme. It also came from the fact that we did it 20 or 30 years after we knew we had to do it. We delayed and delayed and delayed, and the project got more expensive, and the damage got more difficult to reverse. And if we had just raised some money at the very beginning to actually do it, it would have been a lot cheaper. And that, that's a real problem that we have in this, in this city and in this state is that we often know the things we have to do. We complain that they're a little too expensive. So we wait until they cost three times as much. And to me, that's kind of one of those, you know, really classic definitions of insanity. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's it's a bit like when you have a car that you know you need to replace and you wait until the door falls off and (laughs) until you really can't use the car anymore. And you realize, you know, I probably could have replaced it a few years ago and it might have been more efficient for my family and for my neighborhood. 
Um, but you wait and you wait. And, and that is a bit characteristic of how we are in Boston. It's our Yankee thrift, sometimes at its best, but sometimes not serving us all that well. The Longfellow Bridge isn't just a structure that carries people back and forth between Boston and Cambridge. I've also come to see it as a symbol of the tension and the trade-offs between the past and the future. I look at this bridge, and and quite frankly, we could have built a brand new bridge and done it much more quickly, and it would be up and running right now. This is Tom Keene. He's a former Boston city councilor who represented the neighborhoods adjacent to the Longfellow Bridge. And you could have made a beautiful bridge that might be more reflective even of sort of what Boston looks like now, rather than just trying to say, oh, let's just replicate the past. I interviewed him for my WBUR story last year, and his argument was that it would have been not just faster and cheaper, but also more forward-looking if the state had just demolished the Longfellow Bridge and started over. Now, as it turns out, there's a case in point right here in Boston. It's another bridge called the Zakem Bridge, and I'm standing directly below it right now. It's one mile downstream from the Longfellow Bridge on the same river, the Charles. And it's just a quarter mile away from my apartment, which is kind of sandwiched right between the two bridges. The Zakem Bridge is a modern cable stay bridge, meaning it has this beautiful spider web of white steel cables that run directly from the deck to the two central towers. It carries 10 lanes of highway traffic, which makes it one of the widest cable stay bridges in the world. And it rises at this really steep angle to connect Boston's Central Artery Tunnel with the double-decker I-93 highway that runs north to New Hampshire. The towers were built to resemble the Bunker Hill Monument nearby. And at night, floodlights make the cables in the towers glow in a variety of beautiful colors. In just the short time since the Zakem Bridge opened in 2003, it's become a global icon for the city of Boston. And the price tag for the project was just $112 million, which means building this amazing new bridge from scratch cost about one-third as much as just fixing the old Longfellow Bridge. When you live so close to these two bridges and you're a big infrastructure geek like me, you can't help thinking about the contrast between the two projects and what they say about our real priorities. Sarah and Mark are right that Bostonians love their history. But when you've got so much history, sometimes it feels like it's hard to make room for the future. And in fact, when the Zakem Bridge was first proposed, people here were so startled by the unfamiliar cable stay design that it almost never got built. So, should we build with the future in mind? Or should we focus on preserving the past? Or maybe the real question is, how can we do both at once? Today on Soonish, I want to tell you more about the Longfellow Bridge and the Zakem Bridge, and how they got here. I'm also going to take you to San Francisco, where there's a proposal for a huge outdoor art project that's forcing people to think about how to modernize their own infrastructure. And I'm going to ask what it all means for the future of today's big cities. Projects large enough to change the character of a city are literally once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. So they're probably worth putting some thought into. I want to know not just how do we get in and out of the city, but how do people move around within the city? It's a beautiful bridge. Where do they go? Where do they need to be? But maybe in this case, you just build a different, bigger bridge. And what does it mean in their daily lives? We should not be spending $400 million. How much time does it take them to get to their job? We should easily be spending a billion dollars on our most important street. Those are all the questions that I think we need to ask when we look at these beautiful, big, iconic spaces. Part of the reason the Longfellow Bridge means so much to Bostonians is that it's identified with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who was probably America's most popular poet in the 19th century. In the 1840s, Longfellow fell in love with a young woman who lived on Boston's Beacon Hill, named Fanny Appleton. Fanny didn't want to marry Henry, but he kept up his courtship, and every week for seven long years, he'd walk across the old wooden West Boston Bridge between Cambridge and Boston to see her. Longfellow wrote a poem about those agonizing years, and many decades later, the poem became a popular song. The new steel and granite bridge opened in 1907, and in the 1920s, it was renamed in honor of the poet and the poem. And one thing you need to understand about the Longfellow Bridge is that when it was built, it represented something completely new in America. 
It was designed in the grand European style with fancy flourishes like the salt and pepper towers, which sit on bases sculpted to look like the prows of Viking ships. It's the most important historic bridge in the state, in my opinion. This is Miguel Rosales. He was the original architect for the Longfellow Bridge restoration project. The salt and pepper towers, which again make the bridge memorable and give it a symbolic um, appearance, they took inspiration from European bridges like in Prague and in Paris, you know, they had beautiful arches. And that was also an innovation at that time that had not been done before. But it didn't take long for this architectural gem to lose its shine. After a few decades, the steel spandrel columns that hold up the road deck started to rust. And unlike the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, which is basically getting repainted from one end to the other continuously, the Longfellow Bridge got exactly one thorough paint job back in 1959. And by the time the bridge was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1976, it was already falling apart. I came here to go to graduate school at Harvard in city planning in 1965. And uh, the bridge, you know, was always in the background as something that was clearly deteriorating badly. Um, It has never looked good in all my time in Boston. This is Charlie Sullivan. He's been the director of the Cambridge Historical Commission since 1974. Uh, The state was not maintaining its infrastructure. I hadn't done so since shortly after World War II. And the Longfellow Bridge, because Stora Drive goes right under it, you could always look up and see the rusting girders and see that things were falling off it. It was obvious to any observer, but until the bridge had to be closed on an emergency basis in, I think, 2007, uh, when they limited the speed of the red line trains to 10 miles an hour and closed off the bridge during the 4th of July celebrations because they thought it was unsafe. So that kind of focused people's attention. In 2008, Massachusetts set up a $3 billion fund for emergency bridge repairs and the Longfellow Bridge was at the top of the list. The State Department of Transportation brought in engineers who determined that almost all of the bridge's steel parts above the arches were rusted through and needed to be replaced. And it brought in architects like Miguel Rosales and historical preservation experts like Charlie Sullivan to decide how to do that. Now remember, the bridge was on the National Register of Historic Places. That meant there were strict federal guidelines saying that whatever new parts were added to the bridge they'd have to look just like the old parts. Why is that? Well, the bridge is a representation of its time, of the aesthetic approach of of the turn of the century, but also it represents the highest level of bridge technology and craftsmanship that was available at the turn of the century. And, And that's something to preserve where it's possible. One aspect of bridge craftsmanship that Sullivan and his colleagues thought should be preserved was rivets. And in that single word, rivets. There's a world of pain and a world of glory. She's making history, working for victory, rosing. Rivets are what my WBUR story was all about. To make a long story short, the bridge's original steel parts were held together by tens of thousands of these thick steel pins. During construction, the rivets had to be heated in a furnace until they were red hot so that they'd be malleable enough to hammer into place. But hot riveting is a skill that died out in the construction industry more than 60 years ago, as rivets were replaced by welding and high-strength bolts. To rebuild the Longfellow Bridge in a historically authentic way, contractors had to find metalsmiths who could help them resurrect the dead technology. Then they had to invent ways to speed up the process so that they could build hundreds of new spandrel columns. And at the same time, they had to determine which parts really needed rivets and which ones could be bolted. Even after the contractors found a few shortcuts, the process was slow. The the theory of the restoration was that the rivets were important where they're visible. As is always the case, once you start to actually build something, uh, the contractors and the designers think of different ways to accomplish and hopefully cheaper ways to accomplish the same end. It's taken longer than we expected, but I think the historic preservation agencies have been very uh, constructive and supportive of simplifying the techniques that are used. When repairs on the Longfellow began in 2013, the state said the work would take three years, meaning it should have been completed by 2016. It's now at least two years behind schedule. 
Contractors now say the bridge will reopen in June 2018, after a full five years of partial closures and traffic disruptions. You know, it's, it's, um, it's being a challenge, that project. I asked Miguel Rosales whether he ever heard any discussion about the idea of simply tearing down the Longfellow and building a new bridge. The bridge is it's a historic landmark, it's protected. It would have been very hard to demolish such a you know, bridge that is loved by so many people. That would have been a big, big controversy. And the bridge itself is expensive, but I think at the end it's going to look quite great. And, you know, we have new lighting, it's like a new, you know, new life. And people will be very happy and people will forget the cost. From my window, I can already see some of the bridge's old beauty shining through. But not everyone is happy with the way the project is shaping up. For one thing, the finished Longfellow Bridge is going to have even less capacity than it did before the project. Here's former city councilor Tom Keene again. Granted, it's a beautiful bridge, right? But it is also a bridge that probably is undersized. It doesn't have enough space for sidewalks and bicyclists, which really we didn't have a lot of bicyclists back in 1907. Um, it uh, only carries it carries the train back and forth. It will only have now one lane each way, I think, for automobiles. It probably would be more sensible to have two. Um, you know, it's a beautiful bridge. But in all frankness, I think we really should have decided that maybe in this case, you just build a different, bigger bridge. I think you could have replaced it, and maybe what you could have done is even kept some of the external trappings of it and, you know, repl- and either put those same columns up if you wanted to do it, but actually have a wider bridge. But instead, what we've done is even the guts of this thing has to be historically accurate. And quite frankly, the reason we no longer use riveting is because it's not as good as some of the other techniques that have evolved. So. We're going to probably have a situation 50 to 100 years from now where there are going to be people saying, oh, my God, it's costing us $20 billion to repair this thing because we have to figure out the riveting techniques they used 200 years ago. That said, the bridge is part of Boston's historical charm, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know, so are a lot of things. And, you know, and that bridge, by the way, wasn't the first bridge that crossed from Boston to Cambridge either. There was a bridge beforehand. And you know, that, I suppose, had its own charm in history, and they also figured out that it was okay to tear that down and build a Longfellow Bridge. And I think sometimes we sort of fetishize uh, historical accuracy and kind of let that impede progress. But Bostonians don't always stand in the way of progress. The Zakem Bridge has a very different story, and I'll tell you more about that right after this break. Hey there, this is Charles again. I wanted to take this opportunity to say that if you're enjoying this episode of Soonish, which is a fellow show in the Hub and Spoke Collective, then there is one other episode from Hub and Spoke that you're going to want to hold in reserve for later. Culture Hustlers is an interview and vox pop podcast that lives at the intersection where art and commerce meet. And probably my favorite episode of that podcast saw host Lucas Spivey head over to Seattle, where the two-mile-long bridge the Seattle Viaduct was, well, having its final days before it was demolished. And actually, they closed it down to traffic and had a big street fair so that the city could say goodbye. And Lucas took his mobile recording studio up onto the bridge and interviewed the people of Seattle about whether they thought the viaduct should have remained or whether they agreed that it was a blight and it should go. The insights captured there and conveyed in this episode about this one bridge tap into all the same feelings we're hearing here in Soonish, and some other ones too. So, if after you've heard Wade and I chat about the Longfellow Bridge and London Bridge, you still want more bridges, be sure to check out the episode Taxpayer Time Machine, Seattle's Viaduct is History. You can find that episode at culturehustlers.com, at hubspokeaudio.org, along with all the other Hub and Spoke shows, or wherever you get fine podcasts. All right, back over to you, Wade. Before the break, I was playing some tape for my interview with former Boston City Councilor Tom Keene. He was saying that by spending so much money to restore the Longfellow Bridge, planners in Massachusetts were, in effect, choosing the past over the future. And that's really what we're doing, is replicating the past. Yeah, in fact, we kind of just proved that we can build a new iconic bridge in the form of the Zakem Bridge. Right. And, and the Zakem Bridge, it is now one of the key symbols of Boston. I mean, I don't know if there's a movie about Boston that comes out anymore that doesn't show the shot of the Zakem Bridge. And usually there's a great car chase going across it at the same time. We could have built a great, cool bridge across the Charles here to replace the Longfellow Bridge, and it would become the symbol of Boston for the future rather than Boston for the past. So while Boston missed an opportunity to build an iconic new bridge at the Longfellow Crossing, the story of the Zakem Bridge is much more forward-looking. 
The sleek cable stay bridge replaced an ugly double-decker steel truss bridge that used to bring traffic onto Boston's central artery. That elevated expressway was built in the 1950s, and it was so ugly and so perpetually gridlocked that locals called it the Distressway. Work began in 1991 to demolish the artery and put the whole thing underground. That 15-year, $22 billion project was called the Big Dig. And at the north end of the Big Dig, engineers needed a new set of bridges and ramps to connect with I-93. And at that point, there was a bridge proposed over the Charles River, which was not very attractive, and there was a lot of controversy about that crossing. Um, that crossing was called Skin Z. You know, it had a lot of ramps, and then there were three separate bridges, you know, over the Charles River, and one of them was a double deck. So, you know, there were many, many lanes crossing. So it was a very complicated interchange. That's Miguel Rosales again. He's a native of Guatemala who came to MIT to study urban design in 1985. And I told you earlier that he was the architect for the Longfellow Bridge restoration. But he was also the person who came up with the idea for putting a cable stay bridge at the Central Artery Tunnel exit instead of a double deck bridge. And at that time, um, Secretary Salbucci, Frederick Salbucci, was the Secretary of Transportation, and he really wanted to um, try to improve the Charles River crossing. I thought it would be a good idea to do a cable bridge, and I felt like it would be something that it was unique and special to, to the city. Salvucci liked the idea, and Rosales and a Swiss architect named Christian Men were put in charge of the design. At the time, there was only one cable stay bridge in the United States, the Sunshine Skyway in Tampa Bay, Florida. There never been a cable stay bridge in New England. That was definitely, definitely the first one. But I think um, the authorities thought that if they could find a solution that the people would agree and endorse, they were willing to take a risk, you know, going into a non-traditional structure. When it comes to non-traditional structures, the people in the neighborhoods near the proposed bridge, namely Charlestown in the North End, aren't quick to endorse anything. I have to say there's a lot, there was a lot of opposition to the cable bridge. It was not really accepted by some groups. They thought it was too modern and too different. But in the end, Rosales found a clever way to win their approval. So. You know, when the administration decided that, okay, let's take something about the history and the context and put it on the bridge, I think that helped to sell the design. So, so you know, trying to put the obelisk on the top of the tower, um, I think it really helped marketing-wise of selling the structure. The obelisks that Rosales is talking about are the pyramid-shaped peaks of the cable bridge's central towers. He designed them to echo the Egyptian-style Bunker Hill Monument on Breed's Hill, less than a mile away. So it's had a lot of benefits, you know, visually and, you know, contextually. Like, you see the three towers together from some viewpoint. You can see the two towers of the Sinki Bridge and the Tower of the Bunker Hill Bridge together, and you can see a visual relationship there. And, um, and that was definitely a conscious decision to do that, you know, to help the community accept it. Right, right. What would you have said to, to those critics back then who were afraid that the bridge was too modern? You know, what was your pitch for a very modern or futuristic design? Well, I felt like Boston did something new, um, and especially the entrance to the city needed something like a, like a gateway, like a structure that people will remember. And for so long, you had come into Boston under the double-deck structure. It wasn't not really a very attractive entrance to the city. So... You know, I thought that that would create, you know, this interest. And and that definitely has work. I mean, I think Second Bridge gave Boston like a new image, like a cool city, like a, you know, high-tech city, you know, with all the things to it, not only the bridge, but the bridge definitely helped to change the image of Boston. Rosales is totally right about that. Today, it's hard to find a T-shirt or a postcard or a company logo from Boston that doesn't have the Zakin Bridge on it it's been universally adopted by Bostonians as a kind of exuberant crown for the Central Artery Project and as an icon of the city's future. And when you look at the relatively low price tag for the Zakin Bridge, it makes you wonder why Boston and other American cities aren't even bolder and more experimental when it comes to construction projects. Big infrastructure investments always represent an opportunity to decide whether to fix something old or build something that's functional but flavorless 
or build something futuristic and spicy. And also an opportunity to think about whether the larger community around those projects is thriving and who's really benefiting from all the money we put in. Here's my friend Sarah Barkan again. When I look at a city, when I see a picture of Boston, I'm really proud that we have the Zakem Bridge. We were among the first adopters of this beautiful technology that brought us the Cable Stay Bridge. Um, and the Longfellow Bridge is an incredible example of our rich architectural history. But I want to know not just how do we get in and out of the city, but how do people move around within the city? Um, where do they go? Where do they need to be? And how can they get there? And how long does it take? And what does it mean in their daily lives? How much time do they get to spend with their children? How much time does it take them to get to their jobs? Where are their jobs? Where are their schools? Those are all the questions that I think we need to ask when we look at these beautiful, big, iconic spaces. There's another city that has lots of big, beautiful, iconic spaces, and that's San Francisco. Before I wrap up, I want to take you there and talk about a giant art project that's intended precisely to help people think about these big issues, about how people move around the city. So I'm on the second floor of an old pool hall on Marcus Street in San Francisco. The place used to be called Hollywood Billiards, and for more than a decade, the building sat empty. But now it's a temporary demonstration space for a proposed project called Light Rail. It's the brainchild of this man. I'm Ben Davis. I'm the founder and CEO of Illuminate. That's the nonprofit arts organization in San Francisco, best known for our flagship project, the Bay Lights on the side of the Bay Bridge. We're looking at taking the energy that uh, really was created by the Bay Lights, having it take a right turn up Market Street and transforming Market Street through art. What I'd love to do, though, is just sit here on this bench. Yep. Uh, we're facing a huge screen. Uh, you're actually surrounded by projection screens. Um, this, is, uh, this is the light rail prototype demonstration space. So we have uh, of this two-mile-long artwork that's envisioned for Market Street, which is actually four miles. It's two miles up Market Street and two miles back that through tubes of LED lights reflect above your head the real-time movements of the transit system beneath your feet, our BART system and our Muni system, by tapping into the existing APIs of those transit agencies. Um, we look to activate Market Street, not just celebrating multimodalism and mass transit, but really using light and energy and movement to permeate the economic and emotional divides that have separated uh, Market Street for far too long. To back up a second, if you've been in San Francisco at night any time in the last four years, you've probably seen the Bay Lights. It's an array of 25,000 computer-controlled LEDs attached to the cables of the western span of the Bay Bridge. Every night, the LEDs light up in these fantastic shifting patterns programmed by the light artist Leo Villarreal. The Bay Lights started out as a two-year temporary installation, but they were so incredibly popular that the state replaced the temporary LEDs with new permanent ones in 2016. Ben Davis was the mastermind and fundraiser who made the whole Bay Lights project happen. And he ended up reinvigorating everyone's love for the Bay Bridge. Now he hopes the light rail project can do something similar for Market Street. Uh, right now we're actually in the heart of mid-market in San Francisco. In some ways people can think of it as the most troubling part of, of San Francisco's Market Street. Um, it's an area once you cross 5th Street in the, in the sort of shopping districts, you move into 6th Street and everything sort of changes. Every, every one of your senses in some ways sort of gets assaulted. Um, it's an area of sort of uh, the sense of despair around it in many ways, um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but this artwork is actually a two-mile-long contiguous work of art that we're working on that goes all the way from one market near the ferry building to Van Ness. You could say that Market Street is to San Francisco as the central artery is to Boston. It's the main avenue, and it cuts the city in half, running in a straight diagonal line all the way from the Embarcadero to the Castro. It's got bike and bus and car traffic on the surface and it's got two layers of tunnels underneath, one for Muni streetcars and another for BART subway trains. And the street-level part of Market Street is one of San Francisco's busiest and most contested spaces, especially in the area called Mid-Market. It's adjacent to a low-income neighborhood called the Tenderloin, and in effect, it's the front porch for large numbers of people who are either homeless or live in tiny SRO apartments. Now, there's been a bit of a renaissance in the Mid-Market area since Twitter located its headquarters there in 2012. And the city government wants to put aside $400 million to rip up the existing streetscape on Market Street and rebuild it in a way that's more inviting for pedestrians, bicyclists, and public transportation. But Ben Davis wants to prod the city to think even more ambitiously about what Market Street could mean for everyone in the city. 
we should not be spending $400 million. We should easily be spending a billion dollars on our most important street and creating radical transformation of Market Street and what can, be, what can happen. So I would like to raise the stakes. People often say, well, this is our Champs-Élysées. It's like, yeah, I mean, it should be, right? Energetically, this 120-foot wide street that goes up and down, it, it should have that power and that majesty. Um, or you think about uh, these parallels like the Rhombus, that diagonal that cuts across Barcelona. It's so magical. Or then absolutely magical things like the High Line in New York. The light rail project would try to add a dash of magic to Market Street. It was dreamed up by a pair of local artists named George Zisiadis and Stefano Carazza. And it involves hanging two thin tubes containing colored LED lights from the same catenary lines that hold up the power cables for the city's electric buses. The LEDs would be tied into the control system for the Muni and BART trains underground. And as the actual trains move, the lights would move above ground to show pedestrians which trains are approaching each station and how much time they have to catch their train. At the same time, Davis wants to replace the ugly orange sodium vapor streetlights on Market Street with more flattering and energy-efficient white LED lights. City leaders say they love the project, and Davis has all the permits he needs to get started. But to get light rail built, he's working to raise $10 million from private donors. And one argument he's using is that the light rail installation will draw more people to Market Street, especially at night. That could help people from different backgrounds mix and learn a little compassion. And it could also spur a deeper discussion about what the city should do to make sure that the coming reconstruction of Market Street benefits everyone. The, the beautiful thing about the artwork itself, beyond the larger vision for Market Street, let's just focus on the light rail project. It asks no one to leave. It actually solves the matter of diversity by asking more people to come. You know, light, light has the ability to attract and enlighten, let you see what's there. And in effect, if you're spending a lot of your time on the street, as many people, disenfranchised populations do here in San Francisco, you know, all the better. You have this piece that's sort of your companion. that shines for you more than anyone else in some ways. Um, but the bigger issue, you know, is really what is, what is the experience that our most important street should hold for people? It's a beautiful vision. But San Francisco is a place where all the big issues of race and class tend to play out in arguments about real estate and rent and construction. To think that an art project could cut through all that is asking a lot. I put that point to Davis using a science fiction analogy. I'm not sure if you're a Star Trek fan, but as you know, in the Star Trek universe, San Francisco is sort of the capital of the United Federation of Planets, right? And they, they spend a lot of time showing San Francisco in the movies. And especially in the most recent movie, San Francisco is this magnificent city of vast, you know, 100, 200-story skyscrapers. And the joke is basically, I guess the progressives lost every election for the next 300 years, <laughs> right? Because the, the, quote, progressives in San Francisco are the ones who are dead set against vertical expansion. And that's not relevant to Market Street necessarily, but it does speak to a certain sort of conservatism uh, among people who have a, an idea of what San Francisco should look like. And your vision of kind of taking the high line and bringing it down to street level and making Market Street look that way sounds great, but it's pretty radical. And I just, you know, I wonder how optimistic you are about being able to convince people to unify around a vision like that that's so radical. Some people say San Francisco is the most liberal city in the world as long as nothing changes. That's the challenge, right? How do you, how do you get everyone to lift their gaze simultaneously towards a shared goal? You know, Baylights gives me hope. I know it's just a piece of art. Right? But it doesn't, it doesn't have a polarizing position. In fact, it does just the opposite. It has this ability to sort of unite people. I just started it because there was this general impulse to try and bring the energy of the Bay Lights up Market Street and transform Market Street. And the ideas have been sort of unfurling one upon the next. But it's already stimulated an incredibly healthy conversation. So for me, I, I, I don't have all the specifics. I get down to the real simple stuff. Uh, Market Street, over the past 50 years, has become a place of fear and it needs to be transformed into a place of love in the spirit of San Francisco. So let the tensions play themselves out. Let everybody have their sort of immediate set of interests and concerns. But I think when, if we do this right, we all have that moment to lift to the higher point, the gaze of something that's sort of motivating us. And I, and I hope that the idea of a market street that really is transformed, that really belongs to the city of San Francisco, that actually the rest of the world would scratch their head and say, how the hell did San Francisco do that? Let's follow their lead. The light rail installation will be temporary, but big infrastructure projects are supposed to last for decades. They last so long that in the course of a human lifetime, 
A community gets basically one shot at designing or redesigning its most important bridges, buildings, streets, and highways. That's our one chance to preserve the past and shape the future. So why not be bold about it? So I want to start by asking the episode, because of when it came out, leaves people in suspense, just simply, what ended up happening with the Longfellow Bridge? Is it okay? Did they finish? They did finish the Longfellow Bridge, and it's just as beautiful as everyone promised it would be. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. That episode came out before the renovation was finished. And I did leave it hanging in a sense. But, you know, one of the people I talked to for that episode was Miguel Rosales, who was the architect who did the original planning for the renovation. And he was basically saying, yeah, it cost a lot of money. It took a long time. It was super complicated. But in the end, everyone will forget how much money it cost and how long it took because the end product will be gorgeous. And he was right. I mean, yeah. You can walk over it and appreciate all the fine details. They went to extreme lengths to recreate the sort of original look and feel of all of the ironwork. Obviously, they you know poured immense love and effort into things like the rivets. Um, but on top of that, the bridge is, is more functional than it was before. I mean, it has much wider and safer sidewalks. It has bike lanes on both sides. Um, it has fewer traffic lanes. And that's what I was going to ask, because that does come up in the episode. Yeah. I mean, they made room for the sidewalks and the bike lanes by taking out one of the traffic lanes. Yeah. So it has less capacity than it used to. But it's rarely jammed. I mean, during rush hour in the afternoons, the traffic is really slow on the bridge, but it's it hasn't ever, it's been a long time since it carried a lot of traffic. Yeah. Um, it's not the most important bridge traffic-wise between Boston and Cambridge. So that hasn't been a big deal. And I think while the bridge was closed, people kind of learned to stop using it. So there just isn't as much traffic on it as it used to be. So it's kind of a weird situation. The bottom line is, yes, the bridge is fine. So I guess the central tension, if there is any, between the two episodes that we did pretty much simultaneously before we knew each other, is that obviously the London Bridge story ends very differently, which is that you know, whatever sense of history there was was abandoned, and they built just a deliriously efficient, if not necessarily glamorous in any way, bridge. And I guess one of the main things that I wanted to ask is, uh, one of the main tensions in your episode is, is it the most efficient bridge we could have built? Are we, are we I think, the, in the tension between past and future, are we favoring past too much? It's clearly not the most efficient bridge we could have done or could have made. There were people I talked to for the episode who pointed out that you could have built an iconic, beautiful bridge in that same spot that would have carried more traffic, that would have been you know, even better for pedestrians and bikers, um, that would have been symbolic of Boston as it is now instead of Boston as it was in 1907, and, and that was still very functional. So... We absolutely could have started from scratch and re-envisioned what that crossing means to the city. Um, I think what we got was like the best compromise between history and functionality that is possible in a political environment like we have in Massachusetts, where there's never enough money for construction or maintenance, where, you know, really crucial maintenance gets deferred until it's too late or it's impossible the yankee thrift yeah exactly the yankee thrift um and where there's often like a lack of vision or leadership to do big things you know i guess with the longfellow bridge it was so ingrained in boston's history that people would have probably really fought hard to keep it if there had been any serious push to demolish it the way london bridge got demolished i think that you would have instantly seen some kind of like citizen uprising to, to save it because the force of NIMBY is very strong in Boston and NIMBY and not in the, not just in the sense of like, I don't want that, that, you know, trash recycling factory in my backyard. 
it's more like these are the things that define us as a people or as a culture, and we're just not going to let go of them. And I understand that. So we've got a bridge that in the end is modern in the sense that it's got all new steel and it's going to last another hundred years at least. The bridge is like interestingly caught halfway between the past and the future now. And I really like the way it came out. Um, it is certainly not an artifact of the future. It's more of an artifact of the past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and listening back to your episode, I, the part that really puzzles me is like how blase Londoners actually seem to be about the London bridge and how, um, easily they were able to let go of that iconic structure. It is interesting because, I mean, if you think about it, and this isn't that surprising because of how much longer history in London stretches back, at least from a, you know, colonized perspective. I think it's interesting to look at some place like London where they just have, like, what we would consider an ancient building, like, around every other corner in some parts of the city. I was listening to a podcast that Caroline Crampton, who does She Done It, did recently where she was saying you know we look at americans and it's like the oldest building you have in your city like we have buildings in our town that are that old that aren't even under historical preservation like oh a a building you know that was made in 1620 like whatever that's just like you can do whatever you want to that building no one's gonna care so it is on a different scale and so it's interesting to see Boston latch on to a bridge that was built, what, 1910, something like that? In that 1907. 1907, so in that era, which feels old for us in an American context, but in a lot of cultures' contexts is very modern. But even that second London Bridge, or third or fourth, or whichever, the 1800s bridge, had been around for much longer than the Longfellow Bridge was around before it kind of was in a moment of crisis. And, um, and yeah, they, they did away with it anyway. They sold it for, for money and they, and they built a new one. And it is, you know, I think I said in the episode, it's kind of striking from a distance, you know, it has a kind of nice, if simple profile. I think what's most, uh, that what really gets people most visitors or whoever about London Bridge is how much you don't really even know you're on a bridge when you're on it. That it just seems like you're on a road and then you look out and you're over the river. Because it's so wide and solid. Yeah, and it doesn't really have... It doesn't have any of the signifiers of a bridge, you know? It doesn't have uh, alcoves or... It's just a sidewalk and there's a guardrail at the end of the sidewalk and then over that guardrail, rather than being grass, there's just... Oh, hey, it's the Thames. Um, but it is, it, you know, it's safe and it's efficient. And that was a real, I mean, for London Bridge, maybe more than any other bridge, considering what it's most famous for, at least in the song, like safety kind of is, is, is an imperative. And structural integrity. One thing that actually occurs to me that I, I wonder whether um, in 1970-ish, when Londoners were trying to figure out what to do with London Bridge, you know, World War II was still fresh enough in their minds and the scars of it were still so visible. It just, I mean, right around the corner, churches that Christopher Wren had designed, just husks, you yeah. know? So I wonder whether, in a way, the trauma um, and the destruction that came along with the war, which didn't, you know, hit London as badly as a lot of other European cities, um, but still hit pretty bad. I mean people had no choice but to like rebuild on a major scale. And so I wonder whether there was almost like they were just immune to it at that point. They were like, okay, well, we'd like to preserve the past, but you know, we have to have, we have to build an actual functioning modern metropolis here and we need a new bridge. And so to heck with it, this old bridge doesn't work anymore. If, you know, if the Nazis had hit it with a V2 or a V1, um, they would have rebuilt it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, And they probably would have built a better one. And I don't know, I just wonder if it's the same situation. Whereas here in the United States, we've been lucky enough for the most part to be immune to those kinds of foreign attacks. And so our infrastructure has lasted longer. Um, A lot of the stuff we have around us is getting pretty old. And at the same time, we're getting even more attached to it. Uh, And it gets harder and harder to move or replace anything. And I guess that's the flaw in the whole premise of like, well, we could have demolished the... Longfellow and just built a 
um, an iconic bridge and its place, you know, one that could have stood for a modern Boston is, um, you know, maybe it's not as scientific as that, or maybe it's a nice idea, but when it comes down to it, they just put a normal bridge there, you know, and what's the difference between a normal bridge? And, well, there's nothing wrong with normal bridges, except the pang of kind of you knew what was there. And I guess for all the pain, what's interesting about the Longfellow Bridge, as you kind of alluded to earlier, isn't that it is the same bridge that was there since 1907, but now it's this added layer of, you know, part of its story now is this sort of Sisyphean effort to, um, to keep it the way it was, but also, I mean, in, in your piece, you know, the discussion you have with the preservationist, you know, this tension that he's aware of, of like, look, we're not telling them not to try and make things simpler. You know, we we need there to be, you know, accurate rivets on the outside, but we're not saying don't don't make those rivets in as an efficient as way as, as possible. And so now what you have is a bridge that is sort of a marriage of all of that. Absolutely. I went to see the steelworks in northern Massachusetts where they were actually building all of these spandrel columns, which are like the vertical columns that um, rest on the arches and hold up the roadbed. And that's those are where most of the rivets are because of the way they're constructed. They have this zigzag kind of pattern of braces and at every corner of the, every brace, there's a rivet. So most of the actual riveting happened in this factory, um, you know, 60 miles from here. And they did not do it the old fashioned way. The old fashioned way would have been to have a guy there, you know, with a pair of tongs putting a rivet into this glowing hot furnace full of coals and hold it there until it was red hot. And then, you know, throw it up to this dude who was holding this kind of funnel, um, this thing that looked like a, like a watering can, but it was meant for rivets. So he would catch the hot rivet in the funnel and then give it to the guy who was going to smash it into the, into the bridge who did it with a hammer, a handheld hammer. And then there would be another guy on the other side where the rivet was coming through, who would smash it down to make it, um, hold. And they invented a, um, a mechanical a pneumatic vice to like do all of those things in one step. Yeah. And so it was way more efficient and probably way less costly um, in terms of manpower and hours, in terms of the number of human hours that went into it. But yeah, they had to make, they had to cut some corners to get the project done on schedule and on budget, which they didn't in the end. But um, and also there are plenty of places on the bridge where they, uh, where you can't really see it, but they use bolts instead of rivets, which is actually better because bolts are stronger than rivets. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think they're, you know, they made an interesting series of compromises and adaptations and yeah. So maybe the bottom line is it's not the same bridge. I mean, it's got the same stone foundations. It's got the same steel arches, the big ones. And everything else is new, like everything. The train tracks and the spandrel the... columns, the roadbed, the train yeah. tracks, the interiors of the salt and pepper towers, um, the approaches, um, the the new light posts, and um, the kind of cleverly reconstructed um, lampshades that actually have LED lights inside them. It's like an interesting mix of the old and the new. Right. It's. It's like they didn't go back and, and install like gas lanterns, right? <laughs> <laughs> they put modern, energy efficient, very super bright LEDs inside those old fashioned lamps. Um, underneath the bridge, they installed all of these cool multicolored LEDs. And so like if from a distance, the whole bridge is lit from underneath in this ghostly and pretty futuristic kind of blue LED color. And that was definitely not part of the original design. So it's almost like you know, rebuilding a, a ship while you're at sea, piece by piece. Isn't it like there's some old... The, the Theseus... Yes, the, ship the Theseus, of Theseus paradox, yes. the ship of Theseus, exactly. So if you're just if you're replacing the mast after every storm and you're replacing the prow after every storm, like eventually there's nothing left of the original ship, yeah. but it's still the same ship. Or is it? That's or the is question. it the same, is ship? It the same ship? Right. Yeah. 
Right. Well, the Longfellow Bridge is still the same bridge, right? But after the next set of repairs in another hundred years, maybe yeah. it won't be. Right. It's sort of the bridge of Theseus. There will come a time, I think, when the Longfellow Bridge needs another overhaul. And then, as, as the person pointed out in the episode, you know, are we then reviving riveting techniques that are 200 years old? But, you know, we've kind of probably bought another hundred years of this. I mean, you really have to be here to see how stunning the bridge looks like from out your window and why it would be something that you're like i have to look more into that because in profile from up here it is quite a striking bridge yeah and i'm glad it's still there in my view shed so to speak yeah have you ever heard that term view shed no. I, I stumbled across that term when i was living in san francisco but it's actually a thing that urban planners think about a lot like what is the set of places from which you can see this thing? The view shed for the, for the Longfellow Bridge includes where I live on the 10th floor, but it also includes like all of Beacon Hill and, and most of East Cambridge and around the Charles River Basin into Back Bay. That's an instructive term. Yeah. It would have been good to use on the Sitco sign because that's the main concern with the Sitco sign. It's not necessarily that they're going to take this thing down, but that they'll box it in with, you know, condos on three sides. And then what's the point of it? That would destroy the view shed. Exactly. Yeah. And the sicko sign is not in my view shed. It's just far enough down the river around the corner that I can't see it from here. So it doesn't mean as much to me. Yeah. Although it means a lot in other ways because, you know, I went to college here in Boston and I've, you know, spent, I've walked and ridden my bike along the river a million times and it's always there. Preservationists don't know what to do with something like the sicko sign. That is, you know, this thing from the 60s. And people are saying, this is important and historical, and we need to make sure that it doesn't change and that the sight lines to it aren't blocked. And, you know, they have council meetings where they're like, but is it old enough? You know? Right. Well, maybe the question isn't, is it old enough? The question is, is it iconic enough? Yeah. And that has nothing to do with age sometimes. It doesn't, yeah. Things that are brand new can become icons. Because they can, as you point out, you know, um, you they put it right up and basically right away it became if anything more a more emblematic bridge of the city than the longfellow was at least from a you know where a filmmaker's going to make sure they get an establishing shot absolutely and since i made that episode i've been paying more attention to how many graphical representations of the zakem bridge there are around boston and it's not an exaggeration to say that like any little league team, any real estate office, you know, any doctor's office that has like a logo is going to have like a simplified profile of the Zakem Bridge. Yeah. More often than not, it's like painfully wrong. Um, <laughs> but you know what they mean instantly because they showed the central tower with all these spider web like um, cables coming down. Um, in little triangles and like it's an instant it's yeah. now an instant icon of Boston and so when things like the sicko sign become beloved in less than you know 50 years i think the city fathers have no choice but to like grapple with that because it's people have a real emotional connection to them and it doesn't have anything to do with how old it is it's also interesting to me that that bridges more than a lot of other kinds of structures bridges lend themselves to becoming icons and that um people get attached to them pretty quickly and pretty deeply. And the London Bridge is like a counterexample, I guess, but just down or upstream, just downstream, right? Insert sound effect here, Rule Britannia, right? Is the Tower Bridge, right? which is the iconic London Bridge. It is. And they'll never be able to move or destroy or like maybe they'll be able to rebuild it but it's there for good now like it is such an icon of london and um that reminded me that i wanted to like ask you if you had seen the latest spider-man movie i have yes. okay okay because the whole like final half hour of that movie is set on tower bridge i think one of the reasons you pick a location like that is because like these days movies have global audiences they're going to be seen by hundreds of millions of people and you want like the climax to happen in a recognizable place and there's no more recognizable place in london than that bridge you know what's really interesting i'm thinking about it now as you bring up spider-man literally they go to three cities in that movie they go to uh, venice and prague and london 
And in every one, there is an important scene on the most iconic bridge in the city. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah. you're right. In the Venice part, it's the Rialto, yeah. which gets destroyed by this hydro man, hydro water, water, water monster, <laughs> right? In Prague, it's the Charles Bridge. I think so, yeah. And in London, it's the Tower Bridge. So that's an interesting connection that I guess I was aware of at a subconscious level. But those are also like the three most iconic locations in those three cities. Yeah, I mean, that's really... if you if, if you it, When you want to get across quickly, this is where we are. You know, first of all, most of the most iconic cities in the world are based on rivers. It's just how urban planning has kind of worked going back to before it was really urban. And... Um, and yeah, those bridges kind of become interchangeable with the cities they're in. They obviously use the Eiffel Tower a little bit in Paris, but um, they would have used the same visual language there or, or wherever they went. The Eiffel Tower really throws things off in Paris. Good point. Um, you know, it is like if it really like from my perspective, obviously, I've never done an episode on the Eiffel Tower, but like almost the impulse would be like if you're gonna if you're gonna do an a logo for iconography that isn't you know kind of a picture of the city that the season is on you know what's it gonna be like i feel like if if you just had to do a minimalist logo that just stood for you know how some things in the world are just iconic it would be the eiffel tower it's like the silhouette of a thing that stands in for, you know, this building doesn't serve any practical purpose. Uh, it's not extraordinarily old in the grand scheme of things, but it just is. It just is Paris, and it just is Europe. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think it is the first modern icon. There's the idea of the seven ancient wonders of the world and the seven yeah. modern wonders of the world. So they've always been iconic places, but the, the Eiffel Tower was maybe the first one that was designed as an icon yeah. and built for no particular reason other than to be the centerpiece of an exposition. And I think that that's a good place to kind of close off because I, rem I do mention in the London Bridge episode, the many London Bridges episode, you know, some icons get to just be beautiful. They don't have to do anything but exist and stand in for people's pride of a city or whatever. And bridges become iconic, but they don't get to do that. They cannot just be iconic. They have a greater purpose, or maybe not a greater purpose, but an equally great purpose, which is to not fall while we're on them. And so that creates this tension of like they become as rich with meaning as something like the Eiffel Tower, but unlike the Eiffel Tower, that meaning can only be mined as long as they are not a risk for hurting us, you know? That's a really good point. And it actually inspires me to make another geeky film-related point, which is what my favorite bridge in the world is the Golden Gate Bridge. And as much as I love the Longfellow Bridge, right? The Golden Gate Bridge is on a different scale and, and has a different kind of grandeur to it. And I would love to go and do a census account of all of the movies That's in destroyed. which the Golden Gate Bridge has been destroyed because it is by far the most destroyed structure yeah. in Hollywood history. And um, I mean, I think the most memorable one maybe in my mind is... Uh, the scene at the end of X-Men, The Last Stand, otherwise not of a great movie, mm. um, where Ian yeah. McKellen playing Magneto, you know, this character who can move metal, um, he has sort of kinetic powers over metal, uses his power to like uproot the entire bridge and move it over to um, Alcatraz and set it down again so that it becomes a bridge from Alcatraz to um, the mainland. It's kind of a ridiculous scene, but it's like it's probably the hundredth time that the Golden Gate Bridge has been destroyed on film, you know, which speaks to something deep about our love of bridges, our respect for bridges and our fear that they will fall down and how 
sort of thrilling in a um in a horrifying way it is to watch a bridge break or fall down or collapse we seem to like have this dark side of us as humans where we fantasize a little bit about what it would be like to watch those things fall and maybe that's the exact same um deep instinct that's driving that nursery rhyme london bridge is falling down why do kids like to chant that song why have they been doing it for like 500 years because the idea that london bridge is falling is kind of scary and thrilling at the same time and you know people might be getting killed like this this famous iconic structure isn't as safe as we thought it's actually got some built-in flaw or something i mean it just speaks to our like ambivalence i think about... or even a little bit of an like an apocalyptic impulse yeah that we have and that the most striking way to communicate that more so than like you know moss growing over the cities is like a bridge that ends halfway you know right a bridge that's like got little tendrils of steel yeah hanging out and right it's it's that's an absolute symbol of like post-apocalyptic circumstances right yeah to the point where like you said we do it to the golden gate bridge like every summer you know right. like, maybe the apes and then uh godzilla and just basically some summers multiple times we destroy the golden gate bridge right it's like there must be like a reference cgi model at some that they all like, share yeah, yeah they're all sharing why why would you ever want right. a building let's cost saving let's just share this destroyed golden gate bridge yes. right <laughs> So I hope I never, you know, have to see the the Longfellow Bridge or the Zeichen Bridge destroyed in that way. Um, they're not famous enough. They're not globally famous enough that it would make sense to do that in a movie. But I actually, did you see the newest Godzilla, the the King of Monsters one? I haven't no. seen it yet, but uh-uh. they destroy Boston. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I should go see it then. Yeah. So I really like that 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 Godzilla movie from 2014, and I love Kong Skull Island. And even then, I just wasn't super interested in this King of Monsters one. But the one thing that made me go like, but actually, I should probably go see it, is like, I, I have a podcast called Iconography that's like focused on Boston. Like, I feel like I have to go see them destroy Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should do a whole show about how we uh, worship and also kind of secretly want to destroy these icons. There we go. Good idea. All right. I'm going to put it in the backlog. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Charles. This has been really fun. Yeah, this has been fun. My thanks to Wade Rausch for letting me share his Tale of Two Bridges episode of Soonish and for sitting down with me for a chat about bridges, icons, and somehow, Spider-Man. The Soonish theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsay. Additional music in A Tale of Two Bridges was by Tim Beak. You can find Soonish at soonishpodcast.org on Twitter at Soonish Podcast, and you can find it with all the other Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. As for The Birthday Boy, Iconography is written and produced by me, Charles Gustine, with script editing and feedback from Carol Zoll, who has been a huge part of making Iconography what it is now in its third year. Wondering what you can get us for our birthday? Well, our list is small. <laughs> We ask only for you to share the podcast with a friend. Get the word out on Twitter, where you can find the show at Iconography Pod, or on Instagram or Facebook, where we're at Iconography Podcast. Or heck, text someone or call someone you like, telling them, Iconography is a pretty neat show. Next time, for the first time, three years in, actual iconography. I know. Not my cheeky version of it, but an honest-to-God, pun intended, uh, visit to the Museum of Russian Icons for a crash course in what it means to create and study icons.